Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a celebration of books. I'm Nico Callaghan. In today's episode, in his new book, Machines Behaving Badly, Professor Toby Walsh, a world-leading researcher in the field of artificial intelligence, explores the ethical considerations and unexpected consequences AI poses. Is Alexa racist? Can robots have rights? What happens if a self-driving car kills someone? What limitations should we put on the use of facial recognition? Machines Behaving Badly is the thought-provoking book, and it looks at the increasing human reliance on robotics and the decision that need to be made now to ensure the future of AI is a force for good, not evil. Mel Campbell interviewed Toby Walsh in-store at Readings Carlton for this conversation. And now, here's the recording of the event. Hello everyone, welcome to Readings Carlton. Glad to have you all here for the event tonight. Before we get going and before I introduce our guests, I'd just like to say and acknowledge that we're here on Indigenous land. This is the Kulin country and I'd like to pay my respects to their elders of the past, present and those to come in the future. I'll introduce our interviewer as opposed to our interviewee. I'll leave that to you. I have with us here Mel Campbell. Mel is a writer, podcaster, editor and many other things. I'm really looking forward to you hosting and asking questions of our guest. So, over to you, Mel. Thank you. I want to add one thing about introducing Mel. Mel also launched my first it's ever true. book. It's true. It's true. I so did. So, it's a wonderful to come back and have my next book. Yes. And I was so nervous, Toby, because <laughs> I was like, this guy is the boffin. He's the leading researcher. I was so intimidated. I was swatting like, you know, it was an entrance exam reading that book of yours. Um, well, anyway. the, the good news is you passed. That's hey! why you come back. I'm also a massive Terminator fan as well. So um, expect a few references. I mean, I was gratified that on the very first page of the book, you get that out of the way, the, <laughs> the Terminator references. Um, well... You know about me and my Terminator fandom, but let me introduce Toby Walsh, Professor Toby Walsh, who's one of the world's leading lights in AI, artificial intelligence research. And um, he's a Laureate Fellow and Scientia Professor of Artificial Intelligence at UNSW and at CSIRO Data61. And he's a Fellow of the Australian Academy of Science, of the Association of Computing, Computer Machinery, of the American Association of the Advancement of Science, and of the Ast- Association for the Advancement of Artificial Intelligence. And he has held research positions in Australia, England, France, Germany, Ireland, Italy, Scotland and Sweden. And so I'm wondering how many languages you speak when I hear this. Uh, many? French, Francais, uh-huh. Deutsch. Uh, Italiano, English, Scottish. <laughs> Scots. Scots. Ah, oui, the new. That's right. Well, as you mentioned... I can see you over there. That's right. As you mentioned, um, I launched your first book, which was called It's Alive! Um, Artificial Intelligence from the Logic Piano to Killer Robots, although it had different titles in different markets. Um, and that looked at the past, the present, and the future of AI. And then your second book was 2062, The World That AI Made. And I think you kind of, towards the, the epilogue of this book, you sort of return in a little bit to that kind of moment of 2062. Um, but in a a kind of utopian way. So that book was about our distant future when machines might match or even exceed human intelligence. 2062 is not that far away. I know, I know. But, like, it feels very long. The the, the cute thing about that book is I was explaining the book. It's about where machines are predicted, maybe. I mean, there's a lot of uncertainty, but 
but I surveyed colleagues and they, the average answer they said for where machines might match humans in their, all their intelligence was 2062. And I was explaining this to my daughter when the book was written and she was eight. And I said, well, it's about the world you and all the other children are gonna inherit. And then I did the maths and this is the spooky part because it was entirely coincidental. The book was already in print. I couldn't change it. 2062, she was going to be my age to the year. Whoa. Whoa. That's spooky. <laughs> yes. Oh, it makes you, it's the ghost in the machine. Um, so, Toby, you've also been a leading figure in the campaign to ban lethal autonomous weapons, um, aka killer robots. And you've spoken on this at the UN, both in New York and in Geneva. And more importantly, the Australian newspaper once called you one of the rock stars of Australia's digital revolution. Well, my daughter, again, would just roll about the floor, <laughs> laughing at the p idea that I could... Her, her dad, who just says dad jokes, could, could be a rock star. I don't, I don't own a leather jacket anymore. Anymore I, is the crucial word here, <laughs> isn't it? I don't throw um, televisions out of the window of the hotel I'm staying in <laughs> anymore. No, um, I never did. I actually appreciate the way your family tries so hard to keep you humble. I love the moment in this book where your wife is noticing all these weirdos in the airport and going, is that one of yours? <laughs> one of your colleagues going to this conference that we're at? Um, and yes, I, I very much enjoyed the humour in the book as well. So I think your dad jokes are going down quite well. It's an unexpectedly like, light-hearted and humorous book, I think, considering that the topics that it talks about are quite serious, you know, the future of humanity and so forth. But anyway, um, let me just tell you a little bit about the book. So Machines Behaving Badly is um, an examination of how much we're coming to rely on artificial intelligence, um, on robotics and on the decisions that need to be made now so that we can make sure that robots and AI are acting for good and not for evil. Um, and you ask questions like, can we build machines that behave ethically? Um, what other ethical challenges does AI create? And what lies in store for humanity as we build ever more amazing and intelligent machines? I think the idea of intelligence is something that we kind of get caught up on, isn't it, when we talk about artificial intelligence? And we kind of, we think about artificial general intelligence, don't we, a lot of the time. But a lot of the intelligence is really quite special and cool, but it's quite specific at the same time, and also quite taken for granted. Uh, that's one thing that struck me as I was reading your book, is the idea that it's already here and it's already so embedded in our lives, like electricity, you say. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's often compared to electricity and I think it will become like electricity. I mean, you can't imagine our lives without electricity. It, it powers the lights, it powers the machinery. Um, it's hopefully gonna soon power all our cars um, and all other means of transport. Um, and it also carries all the data mm. that is also integral to our lives these days. And on top of that, increasingly, we're going to be putting smartness. We're going to be putting your light bulb is going to be a little smarter. It's going to turn off when you walk out of the room, so you're not wasting electricity anymore. Your thermostat is going to you know, prepare, the, prepare the temperature for the room for, for whatever weather is coming and not waste energy that way. So increasingly... Anything electrical is going to become smarter and smarter. Yeah, we, we've heard about everything becoming smart, haven't we? Smartphones, smart homes. Um, but what actually is this smartness? It's kind of what struck me was the way that we sort of take it for granted and we have these almost uh, 
human-like um, relationships with our technology. Like, I will constantly talk to Siri <laughs> and ask Siri, like, hey, Siri, I love you. That's sweet. Siri's Irish on my phone. <laughs> um, anyway. The, the, like, studies have suggested that an Irish male voice is quite, <laughs> is, is quite a reassuring one. Do you know, I looked through all the different Siri voices and I was trying to find one that really spoke to me, as it were. And it was the Irish male Siri that I liked the most. But then even thinking about these things reminds you about the way that we take it for granted, almost like these are beings that come to life by themselves. But we have to remember that they are brought to life by, first of all, individuals who program them and secondly by the companies that create them, which have their own... You've got a whole chapter in the book about um, <laughs> companies and... Um, oh. I guess, where am I even going with this question? I think that I, I really wanted to ask you about this idea of the naturalisation of AI in everyday life and how we kind of don't even really understand yep. how much there is of it around already. We don't. I mean, it's a, it's a hidden part of our lives and that's, um, that's a good thing in some sense. You know, people like myself who work in the field are, are pleased that people aren't noticing and being inconvenienced and upset that this device is doing the wrong thing. So, um, but, but equally, I think we get seduced we, by our own intelligence. Right? Our, our one experience of intelligence is, is the one that we experience when we wake up in the morning. And that is perhaps a, a bad model for us to think about the artificial intelligence that we're going to build in machines. Um, and there's a, there's a whole bit in the book about octopuses mm. and about how artificial intelligence, we, we focus on the intelligence bit because that's the bit we think is important. But we forget there's the other word there, artificial, and that actually has really great weight and importance, that it's going to be quite artificial, quite different to human intelligence. And there's no reason why it needs to be the same as human intelligence. Human intelligence is just one way that intelligence manifests itself. And as I talk about in the book, if you, um, you know, if I had another life, I'd perhaps come back and study, um, you know, be a, um, a marine biologist and study octopuses because they are a completely different form of intelligence. As far as, as, far as we can tell, I mean, they're very smart, first of all. They have, um, you know, one of the characteristics of intelligence is, are you a tool user? Uh, octopuses aren't mm. all users. They can mm -hmm. open a screw-top jar and get food out from inside. There's an octopus that famously worked out how to turn the lights off in a laboratory when the lights were left on overnight by squir squir squirting water out and fusing the lights. Oh, that's right, and they escape from there. They're famous yes. escapologists. Um, scientists who work with them give them names, and they say they have particular characters. Um, they are apparently able to recognise faces. Mm -hmm. They say they will recognise people as they and come And I think into as well of that um, documentary on Netflix from a few years oh, ago. Oh, that, the my, my, um, my octopus teacher. My octopus teacher. If during the pandemic you didn't manage to find time to go onto Netflix and see that, go and see it. It is a wonderful watch. It's a wonderful example of the, of the majesty of, of, of nature um, and of the relationship that this filmmaker develops with an octopus and he clearly is having a relationship he's he saves the octopus at one point and the octopus comes back and feeds out of his hand and um it's a, it's a it's a beautiful story but it also is a beautiful example of intelligence and a quite different intelligence and 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 we know in a strongly a strongly genetic sense this is quite a different intelligence i mean for a start an octopus has um has 60 percent of its brains in its legs 
in its eight legs. And if you're trying to work out how to do, you know, octopus motion, lo locomotion, you've got to distribute the intelligence down into the legs. Um, it, so it has a quite quite a different brain structure than us. A very dis much more distributed brain. And we know, um, we know, of course, we share common ancestry with the octopus, with all living life. All, all living life has the same genetic code. It's all, it all comes from the same place. Um, and we, so we share, you know, the same tree of life with everything else. But there, the octopus is in the invertebrate branch of the tree of life, and we're over in the mammal part of the tree of life. So you have to go way back. Um, in the evolutionary tree to find out when we had a common ancestor. You have to go back somewhere like 70 million years. And back at that time, there was barely multicellular life. So what intelligence the octopus has evolved completely separately in a completely different evolutionary path to human intelligence. And so if you want to know what aliens look like, mm -hmm. they look like octopuses. Um, and it's quite a different form of intelligence. And equally, if you want to know what artificial intelligence is like, is it's not necessarily, um, and certainly the bits of the limited primitive intelligence that we can build in machines today, has a very different flavor to human intelligence. That's right. And I think that one of the weird things about maybe the public understanding of AI is we always want machines to think the way that we do. Yes. And they just don't, they don't and they never will. Like even attempts to model the well, human I'm, I'm, brain. I'm not sure I agree with you on the never. But oh, okay. at, at the moment, they don't. Sure, of course. I, 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 I've them. been foolish, haven't yeah, I, to try words, to predict the future. Well, well, never is a very strong word to say <laughs> to a scientist, right? Unless there's some laws of physics that is going to violate. You're reluctant to say never. That's right. But I just want to get back to the idea of strangeness as well, because that's partly what struck me about the octopus. We will never really know the octopus no. Consciousness, will we? And in the same way, um, we will never truly understand the way that machines work. And even uh, the more um, complex they become and the more um, we let them do their own deep learning, the more they become a black box and their thinking becomes even more and more alien to us. Yeah, which is why the book, I think, is you know, touching a very important subject, which is that they won't be things that necessarily we can inspect very well. And yet, if we give them decisions of a moral character that touch people's lives, that you know, decide you know, what welfare people get or what insurance rates or whatever it is, we won't be able to hold them accountable the way we hold humans accountable. That's right. You use a phrase, um, where is it? I had it up here in a second. Um, the strange intruder. Yes. Um, which I also struck, which also struck me as well, because it's it captures that sense that we are surprised by AI when we learn something that it's done or what it's capable of, and that predicting what it can do and and kind of putting guardrails along what it can do is one of the massive challenges that we face. Yes, strange, strange intruder is actually a, a phrase I, I borrowed from Neil Postman. A wonderful essay. If you've not read it, I encourage you to go and read it. It was a, it was a speech, a commencement speech he, he gave many years ago, like 20, 30 years ago, uh, five lessons about technological change. And one, was, one of the lessons was that technology is a, should be seen as a strange intruder into our lives. It isn't. It's nothing in the natural order about technology. It's in a human construct. Um, and we should we should realise it's that it's not say, not part of the natural order of things. It's um, and and that's um, that, there's a, I'm reminded of a lovely quote. Um, um, Gary Kasparov, the world chess champion, mm -hmm. who also was the first uh, world chess champion to be beaten by a computer, was beaten in '97 um, by uh, Deep Blue, mm -hmm. IBM's program. 
Um, and he famously said at the time, he could smell a new form of intelligence across the table <laughs> from him, that it was making moves. And, and I mean, the, the, the interesting thing, the interesting little anecdote about, about that match was that there was a, a move that, that really stumped Gary Kasparov. It was a really strange move. Um, and he was really convinced that the program was cheating or the, pro or the programmers were cheating and, and, the, and, and um, he couldn't understand this move. Um, and and it, it was a strange move. And what act happened actually was that the program had a bug. Oh, right. And it was coming up to the timeout of having to make a decision and it didn't have a decision. So it made a pretty random move, which spooked uh, Gary Kasparov into thinking it had seen further ahead into the game than him and that this was a really, really, really good move. And it was actually a really bad move, but it, 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 it was a psychological blow to Gary Kasparov. <laughs> Um, because he he read more intelligence as we often do, read more intelligence into the machine than it had. We always do that. We always we're always reading more intelligence into machines than they actually ever have. Yes, and I thought that a lot as I was reading your book. Um, I want to get later on to um, a law that you formulated, the um, Turing red flag law. <laughs> but um, just while I think of it now, it reminds me of the way that um, there's been a, a pop cultural phenomenon where we will get an AI loop on some aspect of human art or culture or knowledge, like we'll get it to write a book or we'll get it to do art, we'll get it to write music. And we find it quite charming, the results of the AI. It's almost as though we attribute a kind of innocence to what the AI um, produces, but are we simply just projecting onto the machine <laughs> and making it feel like, it, making it seem more creative somehow, or we're projecting our own values of, of creativity upon um, this machine that doesn't even work the same way that we do. No, it, it, it doesn't work the same way. I mean, the, this, you're, you're hinting at a question which has haunted the field from the very start. I mean, it goes back... It, it, it goes back to... Do androids dream of electric sheep? No. That's even before, um, to, you know, to... Uh, do androids dream, dream of electric? It goes back to Ada Lovelace, mm -hmm. who was working with Charles Babbage in the 18th century, building the first um, mechanical computer, who actually raised this idea, which is that machines only do what we tell them to do after all, and so how could they ever be truly creative? Mm. And that's a question that's haunted the field ever since, and, and computer scientists, even Alan Turing wrote about it in, in, the, in the very first paper, Computer Machinery Intelligence, um, the very first paper written about artificial intelligence, the Ada, uh, Ada Lovelace objection and whether machines could surprise us. Um, but I, you know, I could ask James here, one of my colleagues, you, I'm sure you've been surprised by your machines. Of course. Of course. And I've been surprised by machines. You can ask, you know, ask any AI researcher, you know, what was your aha moment? That whole moment when it did something you completely unexpected. Was it a Frankenstein moment for you? Did you feel like a, a creator? Had yes, like I did. A God? Feel I w my machine did more than I programmed it to do. That's a, an amazing moment to realize that this is, is doing things that you'd never expected to do and capable of doing. I mean, I had my own, own, own I, I, actually, in the book, I talk about it. Uh, you, uh, you may not have seen it in the footnote. There's one of the footnotes in the book. Oh. I talk about my own aha moment where the machine surprised me by doing something that I thought it wasn't capable of. Um, it was a very modest thing, but nevertheless. But, but, but we do this all the time. Um, I, I, I'll tell a, a, a nice anecdote. Yeah, go on. Which, which is about, um, about 
uh, music. So computers creating music. So people, of course, have tried to create write programs that create music like the greats do. So um, Bach, of course, is one of the mm. greatest, and also one of the more mathematical. And that's what kind of is that why they often raise that in the context? Yeah. So of there's a there's a beautiful symmetry and mathematics to Bach's cantata and so on. Um, and so a number of programs, um, one of my colleagues actually in France wrote one of the programs, the BarkBot. Um, and there's a deep bark as well. Um, but he wrote BarkBot. And then they had a competition. They had BarkBot. They got a, um, people to, to vote on whether BarkBot was the best bark. They got some obscure pieces of bark. And they got a human composer to write in the style of bark. Um, the bad news, humanity, is the human came last. <laughs> The good news is that bark is still the best bark, <laughs> but the um, bark part came in the middle. That's right. Why are they always pitting humans against AI? It just doesn't seem fair. Well, of course, it goes back to the Turing test. I mean, that's, that's exactly the, right. idea, yeah. the, the idea. Well, um, let's talk a little bit about that kind of encounter between a human and AI and an artificial intelligence. So I was thinking even the early days of Eliza Bot, the way that... Um, people actually started to interact with this bot as though it was a person. And that, for me, talked about the way that we as humans are the malleable intelligence. We are the ones who will change the way that we do things um, and that we will accept these robots. And, and that's kind of what makes them dangerous because we don't really stop to think about what we're actually talking to. You're, you're right. I mean, it preys on our superpower. Our superpower is our ability to, to work in collectives in society to you know, look at the person across us and see their reaction and and to mm. you know I, I don't know that you're intelligent um you know i uh, there's no test i can do that can tell me that you're conscious and but but you know you, you look the right stuff and mm. you're saying the right things so so i'm going to give my you my maker did very well i i'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt mm -hmm. and we do the the problem is but then AIs, AIs abuse that in some sense because they, they play on our ability, our, our culpability to do that to, so that you know, a simple chatbot like Eliza is easily fooling people, um, is easily deceiving us because that's preying on our, our, our cooperation, our, our strength to cooperate with each other. We, we try and, you know, people say you know, speech is full of mistakes and we, we fill in the gaps. That's right. And don't you have in the book also an example of an AI um, phone yes, duplex that included fake stuttering and, and hesitation to seem more human? Yes, this was an example of machines behaving badly. Well, actually, really, it's an example of corporations behaving badly. But there was in 2018, there was this big demo at Google's main conference, the I.O. conference, um, where they demoed this intelligent assistant, so it's like Siri on steroids, that you could say, go and book me a table at a restaurant, or go and book me a haircut, and it would ring the person up, and it would have a conversation. And the conversation would go backwards and forwards, and someone would say, Fred, we don't have a table then, could you do nine o'clock? And they would say, yes, nine o'clock will be fine. How many people, um, and you could have the conversation in any order. And it had some understanding, now, of course, if you changed the script and started talking about um, you know, Marxist philosophy, it would have <laughs> no hope. It's not like humans. It, it's a script, um, and it's interesting to realize how scripted those transactions we have are. Many of our transactions in life are actually quite scripted, and so it's not so difficult. It's not so um, 
it's not so amazing to be able to write a, a, a bot that can have those conversations. But what was, what was bad behavior, what was deception, was that this bot, first of all, didn't introduce itself. It didn't say, hello, I'm Toby's computer. I'm ringing up for Toby to book a table. And I didn't say any of that. It pretended to be a person. And it pretended doubly so because it ummed and ahed like a person. Mm. Now, there's absolutely no reason to program ums and ahs into conversation other than really to deceive people. I mean, I, I, the, d the developers would say, well, that's to, to make people more relaxed around it. But it was pure deception. Um, and in terms of corporations behaving badly, and now I'm going to tell you a, a little secret, which is I know um, some of the people at Google quite well. Uh -oh. And I know people in the ethics team, and I know the people in the ethics team told senior management, very senior management, don't release the demo without putting a warning at the start. You know, you're wasting people's time, you're, you know, you're being, being deceptive, you should, ring, you should tell people. And management decided in their wisdom not to, because it would have spoiled the illusion of the demo. And the people gasped, I remember, you can, you can watch it on YouTube, there's the demos on YouTube. People gasped um, because it was really impressive. And you, it's hard to know who is human and who is computer. I played it to my wife and various other people, and most of them got it wrong. Most of them said it was the, the human is the person making the call, and it's the computer that's you know, um, receiving the call. It's the that's other way right. around. What I think is perhaps troubling is that for the people who made such a technology, that's a success, like you were just saying before. And so it is the companies that produce, um, the, the tech companies, that are sometimes the machines behaving badly. <laughs> and I was really, I enjoyed the way that you speak of tech companies as intelligences in their own right, the superhuman intelligences. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, so one of the questions you, you often get is if you work in AI, am I, am I not worried like Nick Bostrom is about super intelligence, that machines are going to become much smarter than us? Oh, and, the paperclip. And um, the, the famous paperclip yeah. experiment and so on. Um, and, and I like to point out to people, no, because we already know what super intelligence looks like. We, we already have it in our lives. No one knows how to build a um, microprocessor. No one knows how to build a nuclear power station. No one knows how to build a bulk ore carrier. Um, but companies do. The collective wisdom of companies know how to do those things, or the collective wisdom of government departments, right? But humans together collectively are much smarter than the individual. Um, and therefore, we have a superintelligence that's the, the collective organizations like companies, like government departments that do things and, cr and create things. Um, and we've already seen the challenge, the paperclip challenge, the value alignment problem, which is that the values of the corporation don't necessarily align with the values of society or the values of the individual. Yes. Um, and how, and so that is the, you know, the value alignment problem people talk about in superintelligence is already hurting us today. The value alignment problem is the one that we see in the Facebook newsfeed, the one that we see you know, polarizing our political discourse, discourse because um, they were trying to do, get more engagement and they used the wrong proxies. That's right. Yes. Now, um, what I was interested in is the chapter in your book where you do introduce that these are people 
and then the people work in companies and it is these forces that create these um, AI challenges that we face today. So we kind of think about two things, either this megalomaniacal figure like a Zuckerberg <laughs> or, you know, a Jeff Bezos or an Elon Musk, um, someone who is personally responsible for, you know, the fates of billions, or we also have this idea that AI kind of invents itself and it arises consciousness like it's it's awoken like like that but I think that the truth is both and neither um so it's I think that the regulation kind of side of things is something that we don't necessarily associate with AI we see it as a business problem but it's a it's a human problem isn't it it's an ethics problem it, it is an ethics problem I mean it, at so many points in the book I actually say this is about the society we want to build um, and like any technology, we use it. It's going to reflect the values that we want to build into the system. And so we should make some better choices in mm. some places. And you talk about the way that um, these companies and their culture were influenced by philosophies such as objectivism, for <laughs> instance, or um, like techno, what is it? Uh, Anne Rind. Yes, exactly. The, the Silicon Valley's favourite philosopher. And then um, what's the, philo the philosophy by the guy who he's now cryogenically frozen waiting for his resurrection? Um, oh, I've forgotten what it's called. I'll transhumanism. Transhumanism. The yes, transhumanist, like, yes. So I'm, like these... I, I do know more transhumanists than I should do. <laughs> it's, only a, it's only if you sample the world randomly, I know far more transhumanists. Um, yes. So, more transhuman than human. Yes. And that was a joke. Anyway, thanks for, thanks for indulging my terrible jokes. But um, it makes me think as well about the bias that gets baked into um, AI simply because of the people who are making it, with whom we don't really think of as people who themselves have bias. Only when something like um, the, the smart hand dryer doesn't turn on when a black person puts their hands underneath it um, or the Apple... Um, doesn't have the period tracking app on it because it doesn't consider women. Um, wh what do you kind of see as being one of the main problems with the, the industry itself and the, the biases that are baked into it at that end, in the personnel end? Well, uh, sadly, we still have a huge, great diversity problem. Uh, Melanie Mitchell, who was famously fired from Google not so long ago, um, shortly after Timnit was, was fired before her, um, the two heads of the Google ethics leads, so read into that what you may. Um, <laughs> she called it the sea of dudes problem, which, which is a pretty accurate description. 80% um, of the people who work in the field are white male people like myself, um, not representative of the wider society. Um, and there's plentiful evidence that that, well, first of all, we have a huge shortage of people to work in the field, so if we're not recruiting from half of the half of the population, the, the female half of the population, or or you know, black people or indigenous people or all these other minorities that are not fairly represented within the field, that's that's hurting the field. But but equally, there's so much evidence that diverse te teams build better product. They are going to ask those questions. They're going to ask, well, wait a second, we're tracking people's health as the Apple Watch. Uh, um, uh, HealthKit API was doing at the very start, but we're not asking about the woman's menstrual cycle. How can we possibly say anything reasonable um, about her health if we're not bothering to something as fundamental to her health as that? That's right. And it also reminds me of what you identify as this duality um, with AI, that it has such 
simultaneous potential to do good and also behave badly. So even as I was thinking about something like um, facial recognition or about the period tracking, it's sinister as well. The idea that my human body is being so closely watched on a kind of organic level, is it bleeding or not, you know, <laughs> by a machine. And the idea that surveillance is already so, so much of a concern. Are, are we only helping... Um, government regimes, militaries and other repressive forces within society to further repress populations and to pursue things like war. It is. It, uh, I think this is a bit of a boiling frog problem. So bo boil, boiling frogs, the metaphor here is that if you put a frog into cold water and turn the heat up, the water will slowly boil and the frog will sit there and do nothing. If you drop a frog into boiling water, it will jump out, knowing, knowing that it's going to die. Um, and I think this is the same with starting to happen with things like surveillance, is that we're used to seeing cameras everywhere, but when cameras were first introduced, there was you know, a video recorder in the corner that was poorly recording the, the video, and we knew it was somewhat harmless. There weren't enough people to look at all the cameras. If some crime had taken place, the police would come, the coppers would come around, they'd get the videotapes, and they'd look at the videotapes, crime had took a place, so it's reasonable to look at the videotapes, and maybe they'd find the, the suspect that way. But now we have the potential of taking the videotapes away, putting software behind that, facial recognition software, and you can monitor a city in real time. And you don't have to think this is hypothetical because this is happening. It's happening in China. Um, yes, well, I actually did want to mention China because there have been some striking images coming out of the Shanghai lockdown. For instance, um, robot dogs like yes. Boston Dynamics's Spot roaming the streets with messages saying yeah. to stay indoors or those drones that were... Um, what was the phrase that they were saying? It was control your soul's desire for freedom. Yes. It's like something out of Blade Runner, um, but it's well, already you happening know, now. George Orwell's 1984, mm. maybe. Um, and, and there's one thing that George Orwell got wrong, and he got mo almost everything right, but one thing I will claim he got wrong, which was it's not Big Brother. It's not people watching people. It's computers watching people. That scales. You can do that. Mm. Um, and we have to worry, you know, what sort of world we built for ourselves. And don't, don't think this is just a problem for poor Chinese people. Um, you know, there is a proposal to have a national database um, anyone who's got a passport, anyone who's got a driving license, the idea is to have a national biometric database um, of all of your information. Now, um, ostensibly for national security purposes. Now, I'm not sure our national security is so poor at the moment that we need to be able to survey people 24-7. Of course, I think you know, we're all perhaps pretty on board with the idea that when you go through a border, when you go you know, onto a plane or into or out of the country, that's an appropriate moment. You know you're going to be exposing yourself. But you don't have a choice when you go to the supermarket to go and buy some food or the pharmacy to get some medicine to show your face. I mean, the funny thing is, you know, the pandemic was an, was an interesting gift because for a short amount of time, wearing a mask meant the face recognition didn't work because it wasn't trained on faces with masks. But now, unfortunately, I'm sad to say, they quickly retrain the algorithms and between uh, using the mask and also other things that we can, we can look at how you walk, your gait, 
um, you can now still be quite easily recognised still. But there was a brief moment where you got a bit more yeah. privacy back. I am feeling kind of reassured by the fact that I did upgrade my um, iOS to the point where it's meant to be able to recognise me in a mask, but it doesn't yet. <laughs> I'm feeling safe. And it also reminds me of um, activists who use dazzle camouflage yes. on their faces to fool facial recognition technology. And uh, it, I'm always struck by anyone who pushes back against AI is seen as a Luddite and a kind of a hater of technology and as being stupid or scared. Do you think that we are, we're right to be trepidatious about this? You speak I, think we're, I think we're right because it changes the nature of the society you're in. If when you go out on a political demonstration, in the past, and, and think of all the great things that political demonstrations have done. They've got women the right to vote. They've given indigenous rights. They've, um, I, you know, was out there on the streets with all the children for the climate strikes, right? Um, there are things that we do and we've changed our world to be a better place by going out and protesting against the status quo. And we've done that in the past in a somewhat anonymous way. If you're out protesting, there's not a and you're not breaking the law, then I'm not sure that we should have an easy way for you to be identified and you perhaps to be prosecuted or you to be persecuted by your employer. Um, that changes the nature of the protest. You want to be able to say, you know, question the status quo. And the world has been made a better place by our ability to do that. And if we have technologies that, that censor us from doing that, I'm not sure that we will have as good a society as the one where we can speak freely and we can question the orthodox, we can question, mm. we can change the world and make it a more fair, just place. Yes, you speak about the idea of friction, that sometimes we might live in a society or a kind of state of technology that's a little frictionless. We don't necessarily think that much. For instance, just the way that um, we're used to having so much information and data just at our fingertips these days. The convenience of it has we've become used to. But one of the things you argue is that perhaps we can introduce a little bit of extra friction. Yes. Yeah, I mean, the, the good thing about the internet is its lack of friction. The bad thing about the internet is its lack of friction, right? You know, so one, one example of friction is identity, right? You know, why, you know, that's that beautiful New Yorker cartoon, you know, on the internet, no one knows you're a dog, that's right. which is true on the internet. That was one of the beauties of the internet. But also, that's one of the reasons why we get such bad behavior. Mm. Because you can go onto Twitter and you can insult people. You can say vile, hateful things that really hurt people, that really hurt the political discourse, really hurt a social cohesion. And if we had to stand up and be the person we are claiming to be, then maybe that friction, maybe that would make Twitter, for example, a slightly nicer place. Mm. Um, I'm a lecturer in writing and editing for digital media, so I've been thinking a lot about um, civility on platforms and how as writers and editors and as platform governors like, you know, social media managers, um, moderators, those kinds of figures, how do we actually ensure a kind of civility? And the Australian government recently tried for defamation purposes to introduce the, a law uh, that every commenter on social media would, would have to be identified. And there is a lot of research saying there that people will still behave badly, even if they are yes. identified. Yes, it's, it's, yes, I'm not sure it's saying good things about us as opposed to... Yes, and so much of what are really machines... What are machines behaving badly are really the people um, yes. who run the machines. I, 
but just to stick to the AI part of this, I mean, one of the problems with Twitter is it was all the bots. I mean, so Elon's got most many things wrong, but one thing he's got right is that the one of the problems with Twitter is that there are way more bots than people. So we're being drowned in this sea of voices that are not human anymore, that are amplifying hate speech, that are amplifying QAnon, that are amplifying yes. conspiracy theories. And so we're drowning in this, this babble of, of bots and we're no longer hearing the human voices. That's true, but they're amplifying our worst voices. Yes, what are. if they were actually speaking in their new uh, uniquely bot uh, voices? Wouldn't that be interesting? It, it would be. Um, what would a bot say if it didn't at all have anything? I mean, probably beyond the scope of this conversation, but it's an interesting thought experiment it's, considering it was, the strangeness it's, of it's it. It's a good example, though, of how the media sometimes pick up the wrong thing. So there was a, a story a couple of years ago Actually, back into when we first talked in 2017. Did we talk about it in the last conversation? I, we I think we might have. I remember it was, it was current then, where two computers were talking to each other, and there was this headline story about how they invented their own language, and then the and the and then the AI researchers had to turn it off because they were worried which way, what was happening. Well, that's right. If they spoke too much to each other, um, and we no longer knew and we what no longer what they said. I actually. Um, had uh, a friend of mine was one of the researchers, and she said, this is complete bullshit. They were writing some computer bots to negotiate in a marketplace prices, mm. to, to, to wheel and deal with, with humans and other bots. And then at the end, just as a final interesting little experiment at the end, they, thought, they took the humans out and they just let the computers <laughs> trade amongst themselves. And what happened was the computers traded really effectively amongst themselves, agreed prices and, and, and quantities, but did it in a shorthand. You know, did it five hash, seven, two, and it learned that that was the language for trading with the other bot. And it wasn't, there wasn't anything sinister about it. It was just, a, well, of course, if you don't need humans to understand, they'll, under, they'll invent a much more compact language of exchanging goods with each other. That's right. And to return... The, the Daily Mail had this, uh, the bots were shortly going to be taking it <laughs> over the planet and they'd invented their own language. Did they illustrate uh, it with a photo of the Terminator uh, again? Uh, yeah, and the next thing they were doing was be plotting the downfall of humanity. <laughs> So it's a good lesson in you can't trust everything you read in the newspapers. That's right. But I do want to return to the idea of the black box because I think it is uh, kind of worrying people to not understand how machines work. And you, you propose as one solution the idea of simply educating people. Simply, yes. Um, what was the name of the program that um, – it's a Finnish program? Elements of AI. Yes. So, so in Finland they have a wonderful thing and I've been I'm, – I'm, I'm trying to get this to fly here in Australia – uh, I've been talking to various politicians about this, but fortunately, elections got in the way. Uh, well, first, first of all, a pandemic got in the way, then the election got in the way. Um, but I'm still hopeful where they've decided that if Finnish society is going to prosper, they need Finnish society to be AI literate, which I think is a, a, a reasonable piece of logic. Um, and so they have actually set up a program to train 10% of Finland in the basics of AI. Not to, not to be able to program AI, but just to understand it, to understand its capabilities, to understand its limitations. So it's not magic. 
so that they can work out how to use it or, 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 or where to take more caution when they're you know, signing t T's and C's for some website. <laughs> well, even as you described the way that it's been I think that's out. a fantastic idea. Now, Finland's only got a population, yeah. I think, of about 3 million people. So it's only two or 300,000 people. So that's, that's the size of a small city, right? Or a large town, right? But it's not a lot of people. <laughs> but we should have the same ambition here. We're a smart nation. And a small nation. And a small nation, you know, so 25 million. Two and a half million people. I think that's a, a really easy goal. We should make sure that we are as literate as the as any other country on the planet about AI and the future it offers us. Mm, and to return to that um, metaphor of the, speaking the language of AI, um, just the way that the program was rolled out across the EU reminded me of those really utopian efforts of communication and, and community, uh, trying to cross-culturally communicate with AI is an interesting idea. Um, now, I want to sort of... We, we've been talking for a while and I want to be a little bit more utopian because it's easy to get really dystopian, <laughs> isn't it, with this? So, how can we build better AI? AI that we can trust and not be so worried about? The, 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 I mean, the first answer is, is the question you asked me earlier, which was have more diversity in, mm -hmm. in the field, to, to recruit more people uh, of diverse background. And the sec, that not, that's, I mean, that includes, you know, having more women, more, more minorities. That also includes having less scientists, more people with humanity backgrounds, more lawyers, more philosophers, more social scientists, more psychologists. Uh, we need all those people. You know, intelligence has many different facets. Mm. And, and these, Programs are going to touch society. We need to, we need to think of all the different dimensions, not just the technical side of the problem, but the socio-political side of the problem, the economic side of the problem. We need all of those people in the room to make sure that we're building the right sort of technology to make our society a better sort of place. Yeah, and you talk about transparency as well and how that's a bit of a double-edged sword. <laughs> so you yes. don't necessarily always think that's a good thing, even though a lot of companies are trying to say it is. It is. It's often, it's often, transparency is often right, put forward as one of the most central ethical principles that we should be building into our systems. Um, and I beg to differ. I mean, first of all, humans are not transparent. Mm. Humans are, are, are completely untransparent, and, and yet we trust them. You know, we, um, my doctor, she, I put my life in her hands, but I have very little understanding of how she comes to her decisions, but that's fine. I know that she's a doctor. I know that she sits in an institution and systems which where if she had killed too many of her patients, she'd have been struck off. If she prescribed drugs that weren't very safe, she would have been struck off. Um, there are institutions in, in, in place that I, I don't have to be an expert on medicine um, to be able to trust her. Um, and the same should be, you know, there's no transparency in, in how she goes about her decision making, which is fine. And there doesn't need to be. Uh, I can still, I, I know that there's a broader institution in which she sits, which means I could just put my trust in her. And transparency has its downsides. If we made the Google algorithm more transparent, it would be more abused. Google rightly use secrecy of their algorithm to protect it from being abused by too many people. Um, so transparency, it can be a bad thing. Um, and I'm not, it's not clear to me whether it's even possible in many settings that the machines, they are going to be this art of intelligence. Mm. There's no reason human intelligence is very transparent. Why would I suppose that we can build machines that are necessarily any more transparent than humans? Yes, you talk about holding machines to a higher standard than we would hold humans too as well, because they, they should be 
um, held to a higher standard because we can't ever hold them accountable for their decisions. Because, we're, well, first of all, we should hold them to higher standards because we can. They're not going to worry about... Um, they're going to be willing to sacrifice their life, their their existence. They don't have lives. They're going to be willing to sacrifice their existence for us. They're going to be. They don't have to worry about their own uh, livelihoods and anything else. They could be totally sacrificial and self-serving to us. Um, so if we can hold them to higher standards, we should. Um, and um, we should also, as you say, because. They can't be punished. They can't. They're not moral beings. They don't have conscience. That they can't. You know, what are we going to do? Turn them off? That doesn't matter, right? So we therefore need to hold them to higher standards because they are less accountable than humans. They don't meet the same moral standards. They can't be prosecuted and punished mm. like humans. And so they better have higher standards. Otherwise, we're going to be in a very difficult moral, legal, um, social place. That's right. Wow. Thank you very much. Will everyone join me in thanking Professor Toby Walsh? You can stream previous episodes of the Readings Podcast at our website, where you'll also find all kinds of other recommendations for great books, music, film and TV. You can also sign up to eNews or to receive our free monthly newsletter, The Readings Monthly. The Readings Podcast is produced by me, Nico Kelly. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. Thank you.